Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I'm laughing at the word nestled, which I haven't even said yet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll say it and get it over with. All right. Because you are live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Brace yourself for the Jerry's Kids on Labor Day weekend. Oh, nestled. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't even go at nestled this week because you brought up Jerry's Kids. I just said brace yourself. Like oh, man, that's just weekend. not funny. I know. I couldn't resist. But, but it's my mind and just not funny. I'm wow. Someone out there laugh. I'm laughing. You are? Yeah, but, but I'm, I'm also taking that politically correct stance. Oh, really? Because I'm a real lefty. That's my thing. That's my thing, too. I'm just so offended. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Speaking of offensive, offended, uh, you're Howard Lapidus. Yes, I am. I'm legendary Burl Bear, Matt Allen producer. Mark C.G. Boyer is my mercifully off again this week. Good. It's kind of like no, I'm, I'm an oral here. condom. Boom, 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 boom. All right, so so um, do we have a guest? Yes. Yeah, we have She's a guest. She's gorgeous. She's svelte and shapely. She's lithe and lovely. She's a true crime hottie and a uh, <laughs> she laughs good too. And a professional. <laughs> and a professional broadcast uh, broadcaster. She and Matt ought to well. get together. What? Hi there. You uh, didn't, Hi there. didn't you Thank win an you Emmy Award here. or something? Was it one of those local Emmys that they give out to everybody? Or, you, you demeaned it right I, there. Why did you go oh, one of those local Emmys? <laughs> oh, one of those uh, you know pieces of crap uh, things that she well, won? It's shiny. That's all I like. That's there a you shiny go. object. That's what we need. More shiny, shiny objects. Shiny object. Hey, who was yeah. our guest for? Oh, that's uh, what's her name? <laughs> 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 well done. <laughs> Sorry for uh, laughing. Pardon me. Camille Kimball. Why do I show up? Famous person. And see, Famous she is part of our, our ongoing series. Next week, we have our Berry Flowers is going to be on. Ah. Is that I, I had an epiphany of sorts the other day when I was on Dan Zapansky's show for 90 Thrill Pack Minutes. Again without me? Yeah. You know, you know that really it, it does. <laughs> but it wasn't about the show, Howard. It was about Masters of True Crime, edited by Arbery Flowers. Well, and what you don't yeah. think that I could handle that? <laughs> have you you don't read think the book? <laughs> I haven't read a book, so why would I have read, read that book? I don't know. Anyway, uh, uh, Camille, so, give me a break. Help so, me being out. as that uh, he interviewed me for ninety thrill-packed minutes about the Alaska mail bomb conspiracy, found in the book Masters of True Crime. I said, hmm, I bet if I had Camille on, that'd get a lot of people listening, because she's so hot, they could just see her right through their radios. And, uh, well, hang on, Camille? Camille? Yes? This is Howard. Um, <laughs> Burl? Yeah? Let's do the question so okay. we can get it out of the way. You know the first question, Camille. What are you wearing? What's the first question? Oh, what are you wearing? <laughs> Well, right now I'm wearing a copy of Masters of True Crime, and I have it open to the Alaska mail bomb conspiracy. That's explosive. She has it open, all right. Yeah, she certainly does. I do. My friend. And the last line has the words Rodney Dangerfield in it. And if you aren't immediately seized with the intense curiosity to find out what Rodney Dangerfield is doing in an Alaska bomb story, I don't know what's wrong with you. That's right. I could see. I could understand him maybe once in his career bombing in Alaska. At that ump bump. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we might have to have you tell your uh, 
fabulous uh, Henny Youngman story, Howard, later on in the show. You want me to sell a Henny Youngman That's story? A, well, you know the one I'm talking about. Oh, that one? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, no, tell, yeah, I'll tell her. Because sure. she liked that story. She's easily impressed by okay. humor. All right. I am easily impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always happy to tell that story. It's one of my favorites. Okay, we'll get to that one. Remind him to tell that one later after we get through the, all the exciting stuff. In Masters of True Crime, I was really happy to be master of anything other than my domain. And then when I got <laughs> between the covers with Camille, I felt so much to better. that, Burl? How was that, dear? You expect us to believe that you are master of your domain? Well, let's say I, I try to keep a hand in. <laughs> oh dear! Yeah. We need to stop this. Yeah, we do. We need to. In get fact, a I'm, I'm going to insist. Uh, I'm going to insist on stopping it. Yes, Camille. Yeah. yeah. Camille. Camille, stop that. Camille. I'm a bad person. Yes. Camille. Camille. I've just watched Jerry Seinfeld. That's all. Yeah, and and and, <laughs> and that's it. I, I watch an episode every night before nice I go to girl. sleep. So there. Yeah. I'm a nice. And girl. he lost the bet too. Howard did. <laughs> oh, I lost a bet, but good. <laughs> I'm glad it was good for you. The Trophy Wife is the story in uh, Masters of True Crime, which you, if you haven't bought this book on uh, audio tape or uh, ebook or print, we're not making enough money. Aren't you so, pim aren't you pimping a little early in the show? Yeah, I figured because it was, hell, Camille and I will both make money if they buy the book. And me? That's right. So, and we both need. Yeah, it. I'll pay the seventy-five bucks I owe you. That would be a help, by the yeah, way. Yeah, would. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first of all, you know you write well, so I don't have to oh, compliment. thank you very much. Yeah, it's very, very good. Uh, I found it vastly entertaining. This is one of the weirdest stories. I mean, I'm continually amazed at how human beings can be so screwed up. And this is a real good example. Not you, but I mean the people in the story. Look, look, look. Yeah, when when here, you're right? when you're the one. Oh, 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 oh sorry, Margaret. Because I, I think we're probably going in the same place. But I, I, when you're the one. That is surprised about people being screwed up. Yeah. We're all in trouble. Yes. Okay. That's a fact. Because you shock me. I shock you? <laughs> yes. I shocked a monkey. Oh, but I didn't shoot the deputy. Okay, Camille. Man, bro. Man, like I, no, once a week I get to make Matt laugh. No, a couple times already. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> Camille, how did you stumble across the story and tell our audience the story? Because it is so weird. Oh, my goodness. Well, it happened here in uh, the Phoenix area where I live, mm. and there was a quite a wonderful young woman. One of the things that happens when you write true crime is you delve into people's lives and things that um, were never public before. If they had been alive, you are there looking at, like their private emails and private papers and so forth. Mm -hmm. And some of these people are going to be absolutely hideous people. But there are going to be others who you just shake your head and say, what a lovely person, what a loss. And that describes Jamie Laity, the victim in this case, a young woman here, 32 years old, whose body has still never been found. But someone is in jail for her murder, and that's a very difficult thing to do, um, to convict someone of murder when there has been no body found. Um, she was... Uh, uh, professional, um, college-educated uh, medical salesperson that you know, made a decent amount of money and had some close friendships, and no one knew quite that she had gone missing because everyone by then lived far away from her, and uh, the boyfriend kept telling everybody that she moved away. Oh, that's, and, a, that's um, a clever trick. The old move the away old trick. moved away. Yeah. Yeah, but she the didn't. Old moved away. I, what I couldn't unravel in this whole story, uh, 
And she has this boyfriend who turns out to be full of crap. He looks good, though. But uh, she keeps getting, you know, no matter what he does, she's there for him, and all the warning signs are there. You know, that is, uh, I think, something that uh, better minds than mine have been studying with uh, great diligence. How do women or people in general get get into these situations where someone is having uh, lots of red flags pop up, but somehow they are unable to extricate themselves. And Jamie was well-loved, well-loved, had close friends, people who really cared about her, and she never told them anything. And um, she kept bailing him out. And I think, giving Jamie credit, I do believe that Brian Stewart, her murderer, must have had a very glib tongue. He must have had... Oh, he must have, yeah, not only in conversation. Yes, Yes, he must have spun gold when he uh, came up with excuses for why different things were happening to him because she, you know, she bought into it time after time after time. What what, what kinds of things, Camille, were happening to him? Well, you know, it starts out with uh, really a very crazy thing. She's out of state on a business trip and she gets a phone call in the middle of the night from uh, detectives back here in Arizona telling her that, you know, her car has been involved in a burglary. So here she is, this wonderful young woman who's living a professional life with, you know, a decent amount of money and um, lots of friends and um, very uh, law-abiding person, very generous person, gave, gave a lot of charity. And suddenly her, her boyfriend is using her car to break into people's houses. And um, he told her, I don't, I don't know why I've been arrested. I was just out and I took a wrong turn and I got arrested. So she went down and bailed him out and, of course, didn't tell anybody, not her family, not her friends. But he was involved in this because she was, above all, a loyal person and she was going to be loyal to him. And if he told her that this was all some big mistake or he was the real victim, she was going to stand by him. And that kind of thing just happened over and over and over again. Yeah, more than once, more than twice. I mean, it just gets stranger and stranger. Yeah. Tell us about this boyfriend of hers. What do we know now about him? Well, yeah, he's a real charmer. Uh, he was a fitness uh, trainer, uh, personal trainer, like you go to the gym and, you know, you hire a, a trainer and he's there telling you to do more crunches. That's what he was. And um, Jamie was more of a cerebral person, and this was sort of a glamorous Acquisition for her boyfriend wise to have that he was so he was the trophy wife. He, well, she called him that herself. There's there's a written record of her saying to one of her closest friends. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, she lost her job in the 2008 crash, and she wrote to her friend, Brian was the trophy wife, and I was the breadwinner, and he is having a hard time understanding that we can't live the lifestyle we had before before. Uh, I lost my job. Right. So he was uh, good-looking, beefy, um, able to charm everybody, and this was, uh, you know, something that Jamie, you know, Jamie was delighted by, I think. Uh, but it turns out, uh, you know, darker and darker layers to this fellow, and uh, when police... Uh, 
arrested him just for having her car because they didn't know what had happened to her yet, but they did arrest him on an outstanding warrant, and he was driving her car. They found divorce papers in his apartment, and um, they were in somebody else's name. And then he found, then they found some other divorce papers in yet another name. So, of course, Brian Stewart is not his real name. His uh, real name goes back to um, Rick Valentini, which is the name he's in jail under, but he also has the name of Ricky Wayne Schmidt, which was also a name that he actually had been born with. His his fingerprints are on record someplace before all this happened, that they could match them to a name? Well, let me think. Um... They must have been. That that detail escapes me at the okay, moment. No problem. That's all right, because he escaped it, too, for a long time. <laughs> he did. He, w- he did serve time previous to this in the Army, and I'm not 100% sure how that works between communicating the they database don't. between the military and they the They don't. Police, That's why. So. They don't communicate. Well, there we go, then. Yeah. And the answer is no. Yeah. This is, uh, he had a dishonorable discharge from the Army, and uh, when they, they went out to arrest him, he stabbed the arresting military officer in the hand. Oh. Well, that kind of sets a template. If, if I may interrupt, and Camille, I beg your indulgence for a second. But, Burl, you just said you had a dishonorable discharge. Not from the that, Army. That was a joke, right? Yeah. yeah. From where? Radio? <laughs> Life, life in general. No, Virgin no. Military. Life is a rock, but the radio rolled me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I heard that song yesterday. I played it in my car. Did you? Yeah, it's a great song. It's one of the great songs it of all time. It is one of the best songs of all time. You know that one, Camille? <laughs> uh, sing it for me again. No, I can't oh, sing yeah, it. No, it's, no a, it's impossible. It's almost yeah, impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> Just to Google uh, life is a rock, but the radio rolled me, and you'll get why we're... Yeah, Unable and then to. listen to it, and yeah. you'll go, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, and then you'll want to listen to it many times. You, you'll see. Anyway, getting yeah. back to the, the, the story here of this this woman and her bizarre boyfriend, there are things about her that really don't make sense to me. I don't just mean her... Go ahead. Her parents, her parents, you know, were weeping and moaning about, you know, how much they loved her and all this stuff, and yet she would have nothing to do with her parents for uh, for a long time. Well, I I think that that was a mistaken judgment on probably everyone in the family, but mostly Jamie. I think there was some competitive um, feelings between her and her sister, and her sister was highly accomplished. I mean, Jamie was accomplished, but she wasn't a neurologist, mm-hmm. and that's what her sister was. And um, her parents uh, really wanted her to go to grad school and follow in her older sister's right. path, and become a doctor or have some sort of specialty. Right, that right. That's like the the, uh, the story of the first Jewish woman president. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get to uh, selling your book in a minute. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us okay. about the first Jewish <laughs> The first woman Jewish woman president. Her parents come to the inauguration, and as she's giving her speech, the lady nudges the guy next to her and says, you see that girl up there being president of the United States? Her brother's a doctor. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> Very much like that, yeah. So I think that Jamie, and, and I can't get inside Jamie's mind, but, I, you know, putting together the pieces that I do now, I think that Jamie wanted some space between them and herself for a while just so that she wouldn't feel um, judged. Mm. Now, whether they were actually judging her or not uh, is something um, 
and, you know, I can't answer, but I do know they loved her very much, and they, they made a lot of effort to try to find her, and they still make effort to find, try to find her body, even though the murderer is already in jail. Also, her friends, with which she was very close and much loved, uh, she kept so much stuff private even from them. Yes. Yes, I have a line in the story where I say she gave a lot, but she shared very little. Yeah. Um, she she was very giving towards their children. You know, they were young women, they're having babies, and she'd give gifts and come to the christenings and this and that. Um, and she also gave a lot. Even when she was out of a job, she gave a lot more, I think, vastly more, actually, than the average person in charitable giving. And she did not let up on her charitable giving uh, during her time of unemployment. In fact, she increased her volunteerism. Mm. So she did give a lot, a lot, a lot. But when it came to sharing her deep feelings, she did not want her girlfriends to know that there was any kind of a problem with this guy. She did not want to look bad. She did, and most of all, and she has written this in one of her messages, I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me. So she was very much about putting on the face that my life is fine. Tell me about you. Mm -hmm. let's, let's do something for you. What can I do for you? So um, I, I just believe she was a wonderful person, and it, it's a shame that she wasn't a little more open with things that may have troubled her about her boyfriend but, um, you know, she wanted him. She, you know, that's clear. She she didn't want to not have the boyfriend. But I think it took her a long time, a couple of years, to sort of have the, you know, I think the psychologists call it limerence, you know, that phase of love where everything is glittery and a pink oh, yeah. cloud yeah, and the all pink that. cloud, yes. Yes. Yeah, all I the endorphins the are dumping. <laughs> yeah, the limerence was finally beginning to wear off, but she only lived a few months after after that. So it's too bad that she didn't share a little more. Well, but you know, it's a, it's a lesson, gentlemen, frankly, it's a lesson that a lot of people take a lifetime to learn. She was only 32. Um, a lot of people keep their relationship problems uh, that are outside the norm. Mm -hmm. um, Speaking uh, of outside the norm, uh, Mark Boyer has a question for you. Welcome okay. back. Um, I was wondering if um, <clears throat> what our uh, our boyfriends or our perpetrators' explanation for her disappearance is. His explanation for what? For her, her disappearance. Yeah. What was oh. his excuse? Well, she had lost her job in the in the crash that occurred in 2008, and she was very busy trying to find new jobs. And the job she wanted was in Denver, although she desperately wanted to stay where she was here in Arizona and she did not get the Denver job there's documentation that she was notified of it that she understood that she did not get the job so she accepted a job here in Arizona which is where her preference was to stay anywhere it just wasn't quite as good a job and she had received the uh, material from the new job you know a cell phone a, a uh, maybe, a, I don't know, a pager or something like that, and a credit card, mm -hmm. and a, maybe a laptop or something. And um, when she went missing, when people began to to say, hey, where's Jamie? I haven't heard from her. He would say, oh, she she, she took the, jo the job in Denver. She moved to Gen Denver. She wants a new life. Well, that was demonstrably not true in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, one of the 
um, clues that something was deeply wrong was that company that had hired her started trying to get their equipment back. And eventually they sent somebody out to the house and... Yeah, they probably figured they hired a flake. They did think they'd hired a flake. But, and they, and they t knocked on the door of a neighbor, and the neighbor said, well, there used to be a man and a woman there. I still see a man, and I don't see the woman anymore. Um, that was an important clue when police finally did show up some weeks later. They heard about that, and, and that is a very suspicious circumstance that one person would disappear. So his, his excuse was that she had moved to Colorado, and she had left the car with him for him to use. That was awfully nice of her. She does seem, uh, I, I, can't, I can't figure her out. <laughs> I mean, she is a compulsive people pleaser, and she does give a lot. She was deeply nice, yes. Uh, and, and when she starts dating this guy, he gets weird, but she just goes right, right. I mean, she's so eager to please him and to keep this relationship going. She's out of work. He's out of work. Uh, he doesn't go get a job. Instead, he spends all his time with the Oath Keepers uh, and the John Birch yeah. Society. And she was right, never right. into that extreme stuff, but she, she gave a talk to the John Birch Society because he asked her to. Uh, right. She did it anyway. And right. If, if my significant other asked me to give a talk to the John Birch Society, I'd bring along that Bob Dylan song, <laughs> John Birch Society, <laughs> Paranoid Blues. <laughs> but, uh, bring that one for me. Yeah. That was very strange that she got, uh, I mean, she'd do almost well, anything to keep it. Well, let me tell you, Pearl, I don't know if you've ever been in a close relationship with a liar, but what happens when you are is they begin to shape your view of the world and of yourself, and you are not living in the same world that everybody else is anymore, and you doubt your own judgment, and you... Um, you feel like, uh, you know, you, you're humiliated if you don't do the things that they say you need to do. They don't just come out and say, oh, you stupid jerk, why don't you do this? They say, gee, I, I thought you were going to do that because I, I, I really thought you were sort of a patriotic person. Oh, my mistake. You know, they're subtle. And that may sound, you know, really petty, just in isolation, but when your entire life is full of comments like that from somebody who you've mm -hmm. chosen to trust the most, you know, a year or two later, you find yourself doing things that do look crazy to people on the outside. That's right. You start buying into the uh, the, P the negative PR from that one who's closest to you. Exactly. And I think definitely that happened to Jamie. I think he probably had her thinking up with down and down with up. Well, he's a strip man. He was good looking. He was. He still is. I just looked at his photo on the uh, prison website before I called you, and got hot, huh? He, um, you know, he's still he's still good looking. He he could always get women. Before Jamie, there were three wives. One Ooh. of whom was a bank vice president. Can I ask a silly question? Because Go ahead, he, no, what what were you doing on the prison uh, a website looking at this guy's picture? Date looking for dates. I'm I'm a true crime girl. I I'm on the prison website a lot. Good answer. All right, keep going. Okay, I thought you were looking <laughs> for dates. What? Uh, how do we get our pictures on the? Your picture isn't on there, Mark. Mark has not been arrested for any felonies in weeks now. No, we gave him all to Zach Gustine. <laughs> well, I will tell you, there's something uh, new on the prison website, and that is they've taken the prisoners' uh, dates of birth off because they're protecting them from identity. Oh. Good for you.
<laughs> now, getting back to this story, we'll go through the sequence of events where this guy is finally arrested for murder, even though they never found the body and they don't know what happened to her. Well, uh, she had a gold Ford Escape that she had bought specifically to go camping with him because he liked to go camping and she was trying to get into his hobbies. So she has this gold Ford Escape and she also has a smaller car. Well, he would drive the smaller car and, uh, you know, before she so-called moved to Colorado and then he suddenly he's, and that actually gets impounded by police during the burglary case. Um, but uh, he starts showing up to work. He's got a new job by now uh, in the Gold Ford Escape, and he starts telling his friends at the gym that uh, she was a psycho and he broke up with her, but he did. she did leave the car there. That was well, awfully nice of her, yeah. Yeah, right. That is so and, weird. Um, I mean, this guy is so twisted. Did anyone talk to his previous wives, or did he murder them, too? No, I believe that they are alive, and he actually is bizarre. He has two kids, um, but we'll get back to that. Okay. So he uh, he's just uh, using her credit cards and living his life in her car, and they had met at a, at a University of Michigan alumni group out here in Arizona, and members of this alumni group um, were getting frustrated that Jamie was not responding to their emails and phone calls. So they asked Brian, what's up with Jamie? And he said, oh, she moved to Colorado. I think she wants a new life. And um, he kept putting them off with excuses like, I don't think she's going to come to this event or that event, and she moved to Colorado and whatever. And um, finally, these two women in particular from the alumni group started getting very suspicious that it just wasn't like her not to... <laughs> Ironically enough, it wasn't like her to not respond to their pleas for her financial help for some students who needed help that she would normally be doing. It's just not her. She would respond. She'd even give money she to have it, right? She absolutely would. And um, they urged him to report her as a missing person. And... Uh, there's some back and forth there, and ultimately they forced him to call her father, and he then gives them an excuse and says, oh, the father doesn't, the father told me to back off. So now these women are, are completely out of their minds. They're just outraged at everything he's saying, and they call the father themselves. And this is uh, the father's first knowledge that anything is wrong is this day. And, and he is beside himself. He said he did get the call from Brian, but then he immediately called police and reported her himself. So the sequence of events, she's reported missing finally after she has actually been missing for two and a half months. The last wow, day it's a long arrived. time. Yeah, it was, was uh, St. Patrick's Day. Now we're into the summer. And um, they went to the house. They found out about the uh, company supervisor that came looking for the equipment and and the neighbor said the woman disappeared. And so now the police are immediately alerted that this is weird. People are looking for her, and uh, she's not anywhere, and this guy is everywhere. And there's an interesting uh, technology out there that reads license plates. And I think this is really cool part of the story. Yeah. And they were aware of the gold... Um, car because enough people in her life knew about it about the gold car so they 
you know, they can see that the gold car is not there at the house. And uh, they enter it into the data system for uh, the, these devices that can read license plates that, like if you're going through a, a lift gate somewhere or something like that, right, you know, booth, it'll register. Yeah. And they go, oh, look, um, it was, uh, you know, there's a, there's a hit here at a certain address. So the cop, a detective, a uh, plainclothes, unmarked car, goes up to this apartment complex where there's a lift gate. And, of course, he can't get in because he doesn't have the code. So he starts to back up and do a U-turn out of the, the entrance there. And just as he's doing that, another car comes up behind him and goes forward. And he goes, oh, well, I'll just complete the 360 and I'll come in behind this car and I'll enter the apartment complex. So now, picture it, he is sitting in his car, his unmarked car behind the car in front of him, which is leaning out and um, putting in the numbers. And the license plate he's staring at is the very car he's looking for. <laughs> and the head that's sticking out of the window is the guy he's looking for. Wow. That's synchronicity for you. Yeah. How far from the original location where they were living is this? Oh. Well, they were li they were living out in Chandler, uh, which is uh, almost a rural area in the outer edges of the Phoenix metroplex on the western southwestern edge of the um, metroplex, and he was in, a, in an apartment in North Scottsdale. So it was about, even though it was all connected city, it was about a 30 minute drive. So he made a, a feeble attempt to disappear. Was that um, what, go ahead. I don't think he really was disappearing. I think he, because he still had, you know, people, he was still interacting with people who knew them as a couple. Um, I think he was trying to come up with a narrative that he had left her and he was living in his own apartment and whatever was happening at her house was not his business. Hmm. Well, what a nutcase. How does he keep all of his identities straight? <laughs> of course, he Yeah, doesn't. good question. I'm not a criminal, so I couldn't answer that. Well, yeah. <laughs> I will tell you this, though. There's a great line in the police record that when they did arrest him. Uh, he had an outstanding warrant, because they always had an outstanding warrant. They arrested him on that. Um, and they started poking and prodding about him, and uh, the detective began, you know, it says right there in the record, I began to believe he was lying. It takes focus and concentration to lie. So I set out to distract, to divide his attention. I just love that line. That's, yeah. that's a great, great tactic by the yeah, police. brought in Burgess Meredith, who will steal a scene from anybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's an old Meredith would be great. Yeah, I yeah, he just totally distract him. <laughs> uh, I mean, people like this guy, he must think he's brilliant. I mean, of himself. Oh. I'm sure he does. He does think that. And, you know, I went to his uh, his fraud trial, uh, which was the first trial that he had, and um, he he tries to ingratiate himself with the jury. And it was a very small courtroom. And when the jury came and went, they had to walk uh, right behind the defense table, and that's between the 
um, what do you call that little railing that separates you from the... the, the, the uh, Colgate Gardol Invisible Shield. <laughs> there, that. Wow. So they're squished up against him between the railing and the table and him and his chair. And he's just got the most ingratiating smile on his face and he's trying to meet their eyes and all of that. And none of them did. They all just kept their eyes straight forward. But later, when the guilty verdict started coming in, he, he, you know, he started out with that face until he started hearing the word guilty over and over. And the mask dropped. And he just became um, visibly and audibly angry and muttering and um, just a growly, snarly face and saying angry words to himself. So I'm sure it is a great effort for him to keep all of those things straight, Pushed as you down, say, yeah. with all the identities. It's, it's a difficult, a great effort to keep the persona straight, the charming, when really underneath you're just this awful, angry person. Yeah, I have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to chime in on that one, bro. <laughs> okay, I'll go right in. Yeah. I've spent years developing this charming persona. Well, you're the legendary Burl Bear. That's right. Raised on records and born to rock and roll. And I'm the only human being I know who's actually been medically diagnosed as charming. <laughs> All right, hang on. <laughs> That's true. How, how do you... Well, uh, we have... Pardon me, can be overusing up your valuable time, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad story. Uh, in my uh, 50s, uh, 60s, whatever it is, uh, because of the head injury I had when I was a kid, I started having more symptoms, etc. So I uh, went to the head of the neurological data bank for the Pacific Northwest, uh, Dr. Vernon Neppe. They did all these interesting tests on my brain, the neurological tests, the psychiatric tests, all sorts of things. And afterwards, they said, we don't usually show patients their information because they're not doctors and they're liable to misunderstand things. But we think you're, you know, because of what you do for a living, that, you know, you can handle this. And the very first thing it says is, Robert, <laughs> my name, and uh, vital statistics, and it says, primary personality affectation. Charming. <laughs> you're making that up. No, he's that's making, true. Camille, that's he's true. making it up. I, no, you're making it up. No, that's true. And so a former girlfriend of mine very wisely said, well, if that's an affectation, what are you really like? <laughs> that's a, that, I like her. That's I'm not best. sure I like driving him around anymore. Oh, <laughs> well, you're right. Yeah. That's, that was a very good observation on her part. If that's Can an we, affectation, uh, what are you really like? So there's a record of that. Can we see a copy of that? Uh, we don't allow anybody to see it. No, Why? <laughs> My ex-wife, who's in an Alzheimer's institution, had it in a file somewhere, but God knows where it is now. But that is a true story, so I get a, kind of a kick out of that. Hang on, your ex-wife is in an Alzheimer's? Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Early onset, which explains a lot. Oh, uh, man. I, I wouldn't wish that on any human. No, I wouldn't Well, first either. of all, she had Burl Bear, then that's the That's probably Alzheimer's. the kicker right yeah. there. Well, she's doing everything she can to forget him. Get on bump. God, we're awful. Oh, getting back to Camille. <laughs> I would joke. like... No, no. I would like Burl. to... Burl. Yeah. Camille. Oh, can I, if I could interject oh, for a moment, um, maybe for, for, for ha if we get back to medically charming, um, perhaps this is a good moment to ask. Well, I looked up your your Wikipedia page, and um, can you tell me why it says you have a gold record for Layla and for Nights in White Satin? Yes, <laughs> yes, I can tell you. Tell I mean, me why. Okay. Tell me how. First of all, Nights in White Satin. 
The album was not ever intended to be an album. It was never meant to be released to the general public. Oh, the uh, L- London had. Records uh, had developed a denim phase four stereo system. They wanted a demonstration tape. They wanted one classical song and one rock song. And they said, who do we have under contract we can bring in to record this one song that we haven't recorded anything since 1964? And they said, oh, the Moody Blues, this bar band <laughs> that plays out there in the hinterlands. And so uh, they brought in the Moody Blues to do one rock and roll song, and they brought in the London Symphony Orchestra to do one classical song. But the uh, main guy from the Moody Blues and the guy from the London Symphony Orchestra had lunch together, and they hit it off famously. That would be Justin Hayward. Very good. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> he can't stand to listen to side two of the album because there's a drumming mistake on it. Oh, that, well, there <laughs> you go. <laughs> but what happened was is they cooked up this plan which was to record this album, which is the one you probably have heard many times, and not tell London Records they were doing that. And therefore, London would be forced to release it as an album to get for tax loss, to get their money back. All right, so we're coming up to the Burl Bear part uh, Yes, we're coming to the Burl yeah. Bear part. Okay. is through a record promoter, I had an acetate of the album, which got no promotion when it first came out. Well, they just dumped it out there, you know, to let it fail. Uh, they had this great seven-and-a-half-minute song on it, which is perfect for a car date if you have someone coming out of the radio station. So and if I was having a tryst uh, or trist or trisket, and anything tastes best when it sits on a Ritz, uh, I'd put on this, <laughs> this uh, you know, uh, Days of Future Past, Nights in White Satin. And at the end of the week, Robert Mitchell, who was a program director, called me into his office and said, Burl, you're playing a song every night on your show that's not on the playlist. It's not even an oldie. It's from God knows where, and we'd fire you for violating format, except it's the most requested song of the week <laughs> on, on our station. And you are the legendary. And I am, you are the legendary Burl Bear, right. and now our competitor, KJR, has gone on it as well. London is re-releasing the album with promotion and re-releasing the song as a single. So therefore... Therefore, you get a gold record. There you go. So I got the gold record wow. for that, and then the question was, is there another song? It's been out for like years. It should have been a hit and wasn't. It was never a single. We went, duh, what could it be? Duh, da 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 da. <laughs> Layla by Derek and the Dominoes on Atco Records, <laughs> which had come out two years before. We it, was, began, it was too long to play on Top 40 Radio, actually. Yeah, and uh, we played it <laughs> and as if it were a brand new song. Same thing. The third one, which I did get a gold record for and someone stole it. Is the color girls go do 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 walk on the wild side? Walk on the wild side. Yeah, great song. Yeah. RCA could not believe that I was playing that as if it were a hit single. Well, <laughs> because guy, it was a hit single. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. but well, that, I'm wise. So yeah, well, you know, you know. They, they sent the guy out from New York <laughs> to come. Said, "What the hell are you doing?" And I said, "Playing this. It's a hit." I said, "That is a hit." I said, "Trust me." And they did, and it was. So, so another gold record for you. Yeah. Now, uh, Camille? Did I answer yes. the question? I've got 19. Yes, it does, but I also think someone should beef up the page to explain all that. Well, there you a, go. That's a great story. Yeah, so, yeah, so we know a writer. <laughs> yeah. We know a writer. Now, uh, Camille, I've got 19 gold records. Uh, and a movie. My goodness. Oh, I got more than uh, more than a movie. Come on. How many oh more, How goodness. many movies you got? Two. Two. Okay. But they were studio. But they were studio films. Yeah. Which is a big deal. It's not an indie film. We, yeah. we had twenty million dollars on both movies pop, back you, then. You can't steal nineteen million out of a one million dollar budget. 
I, I did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Cecil B. DeMille said. He said, why, why are you spending $10 million making the Ten Commandments? Oh, they okay. can't sell a million out of a billion dollar budget. That's right. Well, that explains the glow coming out of my phone. It's all that gold. It's just bursting <laughs> Well, there's through. lots of it. There's lots of it. But I'm not going to bore you with any of those stories. But um, <laughs> You can watch the movies and be equally yeah, bored. The, yeah, the movies you can watch, <laughs> but please don't. I'm not. <laughs> but, I, used to, I used to have an American Express gold card. Does that count? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, and I'd like to borrow it. Yeah. <laughs> so would, uh, what's his name, uh, the boyfriend Yeah, this oh, story? Oh, yeah, well, circle. he's in jail forever on lots of fraud charges. We, there was a guy that we, we had, the, the author on the show, with a guy in prison got an American Express gold card and then escaped from prison and used it. <laughs> They sent, they actually in yes, the mail sent they a actually card sent, to such He filled out the application and sent it in. And you know, to Joe Schwartz, care of Correctional Institute numbers, here's your Good gold card. Heaven. That's a true story. Well, no, I, I believe it because they send cards to anybody. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's why I come up with these uh, uh, Internet names and then American Express business names. Yeah. And so I've received a letter from American Express offering me an American Express business Gold cards, sure. or whatever it is, addressed to liplessoldjew.com. <laughs> I dare you to get it. I was really tempted. Well, how yeah. much was the uh, the annual fee? $25,000. No, how much was the fee? That was the fee. Oh, you had that right? To, you had to... But, um, yeah, they have a lot of money to yeah. have that card, yeah. it, which is, by the way, next to insane. Yes, of course it is. You and could I would be a member of a country club for that. Yeah. No, well, not, not the no. country club where I live. They didn't let Jews in, so I couldn't. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, we're lucky to let Jews into this place. Well, well here we do. But that's because we're a majority. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the exciting story. I would like to know. Uh, Mike Boyer wants to know. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how he disposed of her? You know, there are clues... Um, jail snitches who say he said uh, various things um, and uh, weapons that were found in his apartment include um, uh, guns as well as African spears, uh, samurai swords, that type of thing, daggers um, and the jail snitches said that he talked about shooting her and then cutting her up and he was uh, known to uh, camp in two particular spots in Arizona. One is uh, a desert area that abuts the city of Scottsdale. Um, and, uh, you know, desert, um, even though it's right next to the city, the desert is, is a pretty wicked place. So uh, even though you uh, don't have to go too far to get to the city lights, that could be a very remote area. And then the other one was the Muggy on Rim which, if you're at all familiar with Arizona, it is uh, northern Arizona, and it is a geological formation that is, um, it's like a long finger of plateau that goes out for miles, and there's a, a severe drop-off, again, very remote and stark country. So um, I think the best theory going is that uh, he put her in that um that gold car, that gold SUV, and uh, either drove her to the Scottsdale location or out to the Muggy Own Rim, probably the Scottsdale location, because I think there's, I think that he was, um, you know, there's uh, electronic activity of him being in the city 
later that night. But he could have taken her the next day. I'm not sure. But that's what I think. I think that too, she's too much trouble to go to the, too much trouble to go to the rim. You know, just drive into the desert in Scottsdale and go home and watch the game. Yeah, well, that's uh, how could, could very well be. Could very well be. What was his motive for killing her? Did you ever figure that one out? Um, uh, he wanted the money for sure. Uh, he wanted access to her credit cards without uh, her supervising that. Uh, he wanted the car. And um, it's possible that they may have had a fight that night of some kind. She might have said, okay, you're done, you're out of here, or something like that. On the other hand, there is evidence that he was planning for it because he was telling people for weeks that she wanted a job really bad out of Arizona when all the evidence points otherwise that she wanted very hard to find a job in Arizona. So why would you tell people she wants to leave Arizona? Because you're planning on her not being around anymore and you want to lay the groundwork, right? Um, so it could be, and he's a very impulsive guy, so it could be a combination of planning and maybe a, a, a fight that night. You know, what would the... the inner motive for him, I think just his own anger. I think he just wanted to do it. This is his fourth that we know of, you know, living long-term woman relationship. He may have wanted to kill the others, and he was just sick of it, and he was not holding back with this one. I don't now, know. did you ever talk to any of his ex-wives? I didn't. I didn't, but they did talk to police, and um, oh, we talked about him having two kids, and... Yeah, do the kids visit that, him in prison? No, the kid. No, he abandoned the children, and uh, within a week of her disappearing, he is joining, um, you know, dating websites, and he is writing on them in the, you know, in the about me sections. He's saying, um, "I don't want any kids." Well, he had two kids. They were in grammar school at that. Point. I don't want the ones I have. Exactly. <laughs> This is too bizarre. Where, where were the just? I don't. It's a strange curiosity I have. But where were the kids? Were they in the Phoenix Metro or were they? Oh no, they were in different states. Okay. okay. Yeah. One was up there in Washington, and I forget where the other one was. And then the third wife was in Florida. Um, he he was all over the place. Well, again, there was a case I'm not familiar with it. I can't think of the name of the person or the surrounding situation, but he was serving life in prison, and he petitioned for sole custody. Oh, great, yeah. I'm sure he's going to win that right one. right there in the prison with you, mm -hmm. yeah. Why, why do people well, let people... Knowing Brian, I wouldn't be surprised if he petitioned for child support while he was in prison. Yeah. yeah. Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Well, we got this one. The book is called Masters of True Crime. And the reason they call it Masters of True Crime is supposedly Camille, myself, Catherine Ramsland, uh, Schechter, all sorts of cool people are masters. Of true crime. I, I I will endorse that that yeah. you are a master of true crime, Burrow. And Why Camille yeah. Camille is a master of, of many things. Including, tell us about your brilliant career, including true crime. Yeah, I mean you're not, uh, you're not just famous for your hot looks. We know that. I mean, there's more to you than <laughs> that. Well, let's see. I did a couple of TV shows last month, and I'm going to do another one in about uh, inside of two weeks. And um, ID. No, no, as a matter of fact. Oxygen. But, uh, Oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> I actually signed a non-disclosure because they like to spring it on you. Yeah, so I bet they do. I can't talk too much about it. <laughs> no. And uh, one of the things that uh, I was really um, very gratified by this year um, 
was I got invited to the wedding of one of my heroes from one of my books, which is a really wonderful thing to oh, wow. to do. He was the um, this is an entirely entirely different book than the one we're talking about. This was a sudden shot. This was a serial killer book, and um, one of my um, victims, um, you know, gunshot rings out in the night, and um, my guy goes goes down, and his um, intestines are all over, and he thinks he's going to die, and uh, coming, uh, he doesn't know why he's been shot, and running out of the darkness, he's sees a figure come run out of the darkness toward him and it's and this figure is carrying a gun and he, and he's thinking oh they're going to they're going to finish me off well here I go and um it wasn't someone to finish him off it was someone to save him it was a young man who had been a medic in the army and um he had his service revolver and he had in one hand and he had first aid, his first aid kit in the other and wow. he, he did not know what happened he did not know if the guy on the ground was a criminal who was involved in a gunfight. He just ran out of his house and saved his life. And um, that's amazing. I, that's the wedding I got invited to was the the rescuer. Mm. Oh, no, not, yeah, I thought it was intestine guy, but it wasn't. It was, okay. Oh no, intestine guy is in a is in a, you know he's in a nursing home. He's uh, he's you know Burl. Uh, one thing that people. Um, in our business, see that maybe a lot of other people don't see is that there's murder and then there's assault. And if you survive a gunshot wound that is now categorized as assault or attempted murder, it is a brutal, brutal existence for many people. And this intestine guy is having a very brutal, brutal existence after that because. It was a shotgun, so there are, you know, oh. dozens of pellets still in him, and um, he can't live on his own. And, um, uh, you know, it just enrages you to think that people think they have a right to do that to someone else. Oh, well, I'm just standing my ground. Oh, well, yeah, right. So you're going out with uh, the, the guy that saved the day. But she's done. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going out with him. He married somebody else. I oh, okay. Well, that well, broke your heart. Okay, yeah, that was close. <laughs> I was invited, and I got to go up to the bride and tell her what a hero he was. Because in my experience, the heroes never talk about it. Right, they never you, say, oh, I did this wonderful thing. Um, so, of course, she didn't know anything about it. She knew I was coming. She knew something about a book that I had to tell her. There's a whole section of this book on your wonderful guy here. And that was a that was a... Just a fantastic experience for me because I also visit the guy in the nursing home, and that's a sad thing. And it's wonderful to be able to wrap your arms around the heroic, happy stories. That I'll tell you another thing you can do that'll make you give you warm fuzzies, and, and I didn't know this was going to happen. I dedicated one of my books to Charlotte Dial Breeze, who's my agent, and thanking yes. her. And I get this phone call from her, and she was in tears. She said, Aww. All the years that she'd been an agent, no author had ever dedicated a book to her. And says, well, it's not going to happen again, so I'm glad you liked it. No, she was great. So, I mean, that really surprised me. I figured that everybody had done that at one point or another. But I guess it's well, easy to look at. So, anyway, if you have an agent, you can make them feel real good <laughs> if you thank them. You know, dedicate a well, book to them. I'll have to tell you, I dedicated my first book to my brain surgeon and my medical doctor. So, I, they were first on my list. Oh, if you had to have brain surgery? I did, twice. Who were you? Um, in my 40s. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Do we have time for you to quickly tell us why and what happened? 
um, it was, uh, um, there was tumor, and uh, it became a miserable, uh, not healthy person, and um, it was very difficult to get help for this particular condition that I had, and um, finally found help with a doctor who um, uh, loves the hard cases, and so he was the first name on the dedication page, and um, got um, the surgery from this fantastic surgeon who invented the endoscopic uh, procedure for this for this uh, disease, this tumor location, which is now becoming more and more the standard by others, uh, other brain surgeons. Well, you're lucky. Oh, I know. I mean, they. I mean, it was a hard road to find these guys, but they were at the cutting edge. They were inventing the medicine that I needed. And um, they it's gave really me my life back. really something when the medicine you need hasn't been invented yet. Been there, done that. Yes. It's terrible. And yeah. they gave me my life back. Um, yeah, they didn't so come my, up with the medication for my brain condition until about 1998. A little late. Trying to cure Charming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what was curing, that? Curing Charming. That's very, yeah. very good. No, they couldn't cure the Charming. It was just the other part. As my neurologist said after checking everything, he goes, you know, Burl, in case you haven't noticed, what you, what you classify as a good mood for you, that's suicidal depression to everyone else. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, thank, no wonder I'm so protective of it that I get angry. Oh, my. <laughs> anyway, so that's What's all. What's the girl to say to that? Yeah. It was unusual. Uh, bye. <laughs> Is it that time of the day? What time we got? We got no, a... no, it's the girl saying goodbye to you. That oh. was the joke. Yeah, they say to me, you know, what's the matter? You, you'll get dropped on your head when you were a kid? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact. Close. But, uh, you know, in 1947, which shows how old I am, they didn't have CAT scans, MRIs, any of that sort of thing. And as long as you were breathing, you were fine. Yeah. Yeah, well... <laughs> I ran into some of that when I was trying to find help for, for what I had. Um, so my dedication to in that book is this book is about three men who took lives. I, I mean, this is now dedicated to two men who saved them. The world needs more of you. Oh, that's Carl great. Ted. Yeah. That is really good. See, you notice that you write true crime, you find out that most of these uh, wackos usually have a combination of a traumatic brain injury and some form of abuse, mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual, something like that. Uh, Kirby D. Anthony, is, his mother ran over his head with the car when he was a toddler. Oh, my goodness. She didn't do it on purpose, but the kid somehow got from the babysitter and crawled behind the mother's car. She backed out of the driveway. Uh, Fortunately, it wasn't asphalt. It was dirt. It would roll over. And when she realized what she did, she went, pulled the car forward, rolled over his head again. So these things do have an, uh, do have an effect. Well, you think? Uh, you think? Yeah. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Oh, if you get a chance in your neighborhood, I would like, like to promote a film very quickly that won't cost you anything to go see. It's called okay. uh, Intelligent Lives, and it's about uh, mainstreaming people with intellectual disabilities and who've been warehoused and stuff far too long. Oh, I love that. I have, uh, I'm having dinner with my nephew this evening who is in a wheelchair, so this sounds great. Yeah, it's called... Uh, what is it called? Mainstreaming Lives? No, it's called uh, uh, Intelligent intelligent Lives. Oh, okay. Uh, by Ben Habib is the guy who uh, wrote it and directed it. Chris Cooper uh, narrates it and appears in it because he had a, a son that had uh, cerebral palsy, and they told him to send the kid off and warehouse him until he died. And he said, oh. no, I'm not doing that. And did everything in his power to get that kid mainstreamed as much as humanly possible. Kid wound up being a straight A student, even in Latin, 
Oh my gosh. Wrote poetry and all this stuff. You'd look at me and think he couldn't do anything, but no, he could do all sorts of incredible things. Unfortunately, well, he only lived... the power of love. Yeah, Somebody he only lived to be him. 18, unfortunately. Oh, but in geez. that. But he had a wonderful life. Yeah, great friends, uh, great accomplishments, loving parents. And uh, having a bit of the thing where you have to advocate for your kid if the kid has a condition. Uh, one of my children is a high-functioning autistic. And uh, if you don't know how to advocate for your kids, a lot of the schools will just get away with what they can because they figure you don't know any better. But if you know better, you go in there with guns blazing, you go, I'm here to advocate. You go, okay. <laughs> Well, it's wonderful that this young man was surrounded by loving, yeah. loving champions. Yeah. So it was a great documentary, and it's called Intelligent Lives. And uh, you can go to the Intelligent Lives, I think, .com webpage or something and see the trailer. And you, you can have it shown for free where you live. Uh, they'll bring the film in and show it at a local theater, and they, all you got to do is try to get people to go see it. You know, but it doesn't cost you anything. Great. Great. I will do that. Yeah. Uh, I will they, promote it. What else are you doing in your life right now? Oh, well, if we're com promoting things. Can I promote something that's completely sideways here? Sure. Um, uh, new season starts uh, September 24th on um, ABC, Dancing with the Stars. My niece is uh, the reigning champion, and I hope you all tune in and vote for her, Jenna Johnson. Okay. Can she dance? <laughs> well, there you go. Yes, she dances. You will be amazed at how well she dances. And I'm All right, we'll be rooting for her. Time. And then she'll yeah, be on the Bachelorette. <laughs> and she's a darling, adorable girl and deserves to win again. So please vote for her. <laughs> Thank you so much, Camille. Thanks. We'll buy the books. It was wonderful to be here. You'll be back. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, bro, yeah. the book? Name of the book, Masters of True Crime. Uh, edited by our Mary Flowers, who will be here next week. Okay, good. Hi. We're done. Uh, Merle. Yeah. What's next? Magic Metal. The legend of the phoenix. Huh. All ends with beginnings.